Welcome back to Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's guest is the fantastic Zach Williams. He is the son of the late, great Robin Williams, and he is the founder of a company called PIM, which is a mental hygiene company where they create supplements specifically geared towards supporting one's mental health. This conversation is very vulnerable. It gets into his childhood with Robin, uh, his father. Uh, it gets into things that he's learned from his father. It gets into things that he's learned in his own mental health journey. And uh, it's just a very raw, real, authentic, vulnerable conversation with someone that I have a lot of admiration for. So I hope you guys enjoy this thing. Thank you for subscribing so you get each week's episodes. Thanks for checking out the Align Podcast YouTube channel so you can see the videos as well as instructional content. And thanks for doing you. Let's get to it with the great Zach Williams. How are you feeling, man? Good. Feeling good. You do any kind of breath work practices or mindfulness practices? I know you're into to, uh, having a gratitude practice from what i've heard in other podcasts yeah well you know i've i've recently started getting into transcendental meditation oh cool um i guess that's more of a meditation practice than a mindfulness practice what's your uh what's your i'm I'm always so curious what people's mantras are in that or whatever your your sound is generally you you have to it's it's one thing that you you kind of got (laughs) to Keep to oneself, but it, it, it's not like you know knowing the true mantra of someone will you know give give them power. Uh, why? Why do you think that is? You got to keep the the mantra, whatever it's called, to yourself. What's the, what's the reasoning with that in TM? I think it's it's generally a, a way of establishing a frame of reference. Um, in part, you know, you can you can you can. If you really wanted to, you could determine other people's mantras, but um, I think it's it's important to hold it as kind of you know something precious that you can in turn in turn internalize. It kind of takes on its own life for folks, and so it, it's in in my perspective, it's it's important for people to kind of keep keep the mantras to themselves as a means of starting to internalize what it means to them personally. Huh. versus have external perspectives from folks and so forth or, or judgment. Wow. That sounds so contradictory to most of what we're accustomed to in the, the modern world with social media. You share like, you know, you're, you share yourself taking a shit on, on your stories. You're like, well, everything's coming out great. Just, we're vibing here in the bathroom compared to having something where it's like, or sharing your relationship stuff or sharing your children or sharing, you know, so much having yeah. something that you hold close to yourself seems like a, like a, a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's important that we maintain rich in our lives and they don't necessarily need to be shared at every juncture. Hmm. What's the, how's your inner life going these days? You've, you come from a, a background of a lot of, I know that you had, there's, you've experienced a lot of grief in your life, not just in relation to your, to your dad passing, Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, I've heard another story of when you were 12, I think your 13 year old cousin, he, uh, he died by suicide, died by suicide is, is the term, which I want to talk about the language around suicide as well. 
Sure. Um, and yeah, what was what was your life, your internal landscape like growing up as a kid? How has it shifted over the years? What's happening in internal landscape these days? And that's a very broad question. Um, my internal landscape growing up. Uh, so, you know, I, I was, I was generally pretty obsessive as a kid. I had a lot of hobbies and was very engaged with things like academics. Um, but I tended to run fast. At least my, my mind ran fast. And so, um, that has some benefits to it, but it also has some challenges. And so I think in part, a large part of kind of my early childhood leading into adolescence, leading into young adulthood was, um, was about how to manage, you know, the, the pace of thought and, and, um, huh. and, you know, the issues related to things like obsessive thinking and rumination and anxiety. And, you know, in a large, in a large part, I spent a lot of time self-medicating to manage that. And right. several years ago, I made, made the decision to stop using things like alcohol to do so. Um, but it required me developing a, a healthy, uh, more positive mindset around building a toolkit that I could take with me, ideally one that was, you know, accretive in how it benefited my health and my outlook and mindset and so forth. And so, yeah, you know, currently my inner life is, is, I mean, it's rich, but it's, it's challenging. There's, there's a lot of moving parts to having, you know, being the parent of a, a wonderful two-year-old daughter and a, incredible four-year-old son and a wife who I'm madly in love with. And, you know, we run businesses together and she, I mean, we, pardon me, we run our company. She has her other business. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm traveling somewhat <laughs> to, to speak around the world at this point. And, uh, I love it. I'm, I, I really derive a lot of benefit from it, but there's not enough time in the day to, to do the things I feel like I need to be doing. And so time management is key and also managing, you know, my mental well-being is, is, is hard. Do you have any sense of what, well, cause I think that's a very common thing for sensation of like mind racing, maybe could end up feeling maybe a little bit like anxiety to some people or, um, maybe feeling almost like, 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 like my uncomfortable in my own skin you know i just want, want to run or want to move or want to escape or it's like a lot of information is passing through at least that's something that i've experienced I'm, i don't know what your experience has been like but i'll have that experience on occasion where it feels kind of like that mind race, racing sensation and it's like too much energy to know what to do with and it can feel almost like disorienting for me or i've had moments of that um what was that mind racing like for you and do you have any sense of where that originated? Uh, well, I think in, in part, there's a genetic component to it. Yeah. Um, also, there's, you know, how we were brought up and, and how we take on stimuli. You know, I tend to get distracted. Um, I have a distracted mind. Mm. So finding opportunities for focus. And the thing is, I don't necessarily identify as having attention deficit disorder or anything. I just, I, I tend to ruminate 
a good deal. Yeah. And for me, gen- generally, where a lot of this was derived from, I think, you know, there, there could be a component of early childhood trauma. It, it certainly contributes to things like hypervigilance, yeah. where you're constantly seeking sources of danger or disruption. Um, but that, you know, that, that as it graduates with you into adolescence and adulthood takes on all sorts of different meanings, you know, sources of danger and disruption might not be physical danger and disruption. Hmm. It, totally. could, it could be social insecurity, financial insecurity, and any number of different things. So yeah, some, something I've, I, I mentioned before this, I have, have a, a therapy appointment, which the therapist I, I work with, they're very much of the body. So it's a lot of like meditation and introspection and how things feel in the body. Um, but something that came up in that experience was a awareness that from like a pre-verbal age, like very young age, um, it felt to me in my experience in drumming some of this stuff up that it felt almost like, uh, I felt like unlovable is the, is the potential story that I've, I've manifested. It's, it feels, feels real. Even though I had very, my parents were very attentive and they were very there. Uh, but also simultaneously, my dad was dealing with some level of alcoholism and some level of like suppression and numbing of his own, whatever it was, pain or experience. And he was abused by his mom. And my mom went through some things uh, similar-ish uh, growing up of, of abuse. Uh, and she has like this perfectionist type thing and it's be hard for them to be completely emotionally vulnerable with themselves. And in thinking back or feeling back, it would be uh, reflecting back on like my little baby self being held by my, my dad while he's probably suppressing with alcohol, you know, or kind of disconnected or somewhat disassociated from the experience, even though he's physically presently there with me. And the imprint that that had on me to be something that actually is now carried forth, I believe, in my relationships and my relationship to myself. Uh, have you kind of gone into any paths like that? Like when you, you mentioned childhood trauma, is it okay to, to, to share about what that means? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, I appreciate you sharing, you know, some context in your story. Yeah. You know, I was a child of divorce and, um, and effectively, I grew up in two different homes from a very early age, since essentially before I could remember. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, you're 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 going between house and house, and you know, as as you you grow, you kind of acclimate to the different cultures of different households, right? Mm-hmm. And there's different expectations, different norms and things like that. And I think, you know, for me, it was, it was interesting having this, these two like rich, wonderful lives, but were very separate from one another that didn't intersect generally ever. And so, you know, or had, when, when, when was the divorce? What age? Uh, well, let's just let's just say you know for for all effective purposes from like three years old onwards. Yeah, um, I was living in two separate households, and so here's the thing though, um, is that I had this incredible, rich, 
life that was bifurcated into two parts, right? And when you're when you're context switching and going between, and this is you know this my experience isn't a unique one. It's it's you know there's millions of households throughout the U.S. and and you know throughout the world, and you know my experience. I think a large part of you know I, I would I would say it might not necessarily be related to trauma, but but in part you're kind of acclimating to different environments and context switching a lot. And between that and school and so forth, you you create, you know, these coping mechanisms that enable you to survive, ideally thrive, right? And so, you know, I think in my case, often there was a situation where it was, where I was seeking to establish these coping mechanisms to just feel okay, right? And didn't really take a growth oriented mindset until much further in my life. The the interesting part of that around that is that, you know, what I, I, I was called, I was qualified as a gifted student. And so, you know, for me, I had this impression of kind of my sense of self-worth and esteem. And yet at the same time, it was like, Hey, you're, you're a gifted person. I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't understand what's, you know, what, what this all boils down to. And, and so I was on this kind of accelerated academic track and the same time feeling isolated and, Hmm. and had, had developed kind of coping mechanisms to manage being, um, being okay in my own skin. I think I spent a a large portion of my early life feeling uncomfortable in my own skin. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I was, my, my, my family called me, my, I'm not my, my, my uncle, some particular uncle called me mumbles. So I would like never communicate. I would go to family reunions and I would just, I would just like look at people and observe. And some people were kind to me and be like, oh, Aaron just likes to observe. But I felt so uncomfortable with myself and I felt like a stranger with like everybody there, which was an interesting experience. And then eventually coming up, growing into starting to like renegotiate or excavate or, or or explore the sensation of feeling at home within myself. Um, but yeah, growing up, that was always a, that was a challenging thing for me. Uh, and not that that relates to you, but that was just my experience. Um, I'd love to ask, does it ever, do you ever get annoyed about people asking you about your dad? And like in relation to parenting and such, or is that something that, that is, is intriguing enough for you to talk about? I mean, it's up, it's up to you. (laughs) I'm I'm perfectly happy talking about it. How was your, how was your dad growing up in that, in those, those like formative years? What was your relationship to him like? Um, I mean, we were very close, but the experience that we had were, was one of two friends (laughs) spending time together you know, he was, he was a best friend of mine. So I, uh, I, you know, I'd say that a large part of our way of communicating and, you know, whether you want to call it a language or, 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 you know, a bonding activity was around science fiction, comics, video games, computer games, things like that. And so, 
we spent a, an enormous amount of time focused on bonding through that. So what did you, oh, sorry, go on. No, please. What did, what did you feel like you now as a, a father, what do you feel like you learned from Robin as a father? Either good or good or good or uh, bad. Sure, like yeah, lessons no, that you gathered. It's a good question. I think, you know, for me, play is very important. I spend a lot of time with my son and and my daughter. And, you know, we tend to tell a lot of stories to one another. I mean, my son and myself primarily, my daughters too. So she's yeah. just starting to talk. But um, you know, I think I think learning how to play and I think right. learning how to be kind, you know, but, but this extends to myself too. You know, I can get very stressed out as a parent and I can get frustrated and can snap and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, I'd say my father was very patient with me. Mm. Would he maintain that playfulness? like and and the like the comedic relief and such like even in the house was that an ongoing thing or is there kind of like any type of like other sides like a down like a down downside i would say it's a complex question to answer but i would say yeah, yeah you know he he was uh yeah he 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 was comedic and playful but but I, i'd say you know again a lot of our time was spent kind of in the quieter hours of the day when we're, you know, exploring science, you know, science fiction and comics and, and, uh, he collected toys, which was awesome too. But, right. but really, you know, we, we spent a lot of quiet time together. What do you feel as it is at the root? Like I know, um, quite often with comedians, uh, they have a very troubled childhood and they have, they've, they've gone through a lot of like trials and tribulations. And there was a reason that they needed to, as almost like a, like a coping mechanism or a compensatory strategy, see the light in the world or see humor or be able to cheer their parents up or cheer their family up or, um, be that, that person. And so almost like comedy turns into like a, like a tool or a strategy for them. Um, did you experience anything like that with him? Do you know much about like his, childhood and like what led him to be the person that he was in that way of being like such a bright light um yeah i i know i know a lot about his childhood you know look i think when it comes to comedians it's um it's challenging because you spend so much time going through a process of rejection while you're seeking to make make people laugh and are seeking to appease them yeah and it requires a very special type of individual to succeed in that environment because rejection is rife. Um, and a lot of it feels personal. You know, you're, you're going out and you're, you're spilling your inner life onto the stage and, and that's hard for a lot of folks. And I think if you're talking about how we grow up and, and how, you know, in our family or, you know, because in my father's case, I think, you know, a large part, around a, a large part of his whole performance personality was based upon how he developed again coping mechanisms for achieving validation and things like that but you know i i can't speak for him i can only speak relative to my understanding of kind of 
what it was like, you know, objective, subjectively, what, what I, what I observed. Yeah. His stories and his sharing around his life and, and, you know, from his friends and his, uh, you know, specifically his mother and so forth, you know, hearing stories around that. So, you know, I don't have a window <laughs> into the formative years that, you know, that are anything but, you know, based upon narrative and yeah, stories shared. Well, the reason I'm asking all these questions is, is I'm, I'm curious, like generally curious. I, I assume probably other folks might be curious too. Um, but the, the broader topic of this conversation is, is mental health. And I think that these are very consistent uh, experiences of a lot of people and particularly, you know, like perhaps uh, finding love through achievement, you know, and performance and, you know, as opposed to just like vulnerably being yourself, whatever that means. Um, and so I wonder for, for you, is that something that you like, do you still see tendrils of that within yourself? you know, like, like performing to be loved kind of thing, or is that even appropriate language? You said, you mentioned like being like gifted child growing up. Is there still remnants of that, of, of loved based off of performance, if that's the correct language? Uh, you know, we're, I think it's very different in my case. Um, you know, my, my personal sense of performance involves and you know, if you want to use the term of that's applied in the in the context of recovery, you know, it relates very much to esteemable acts, mm. right? Um, I'm very focused on pegging my personal sense of self worth around esteemable acts, and in part, it's my perspective around service. I uh, I in order for me to feel fulfilled, I need to be looking at how I can better the lives of others and improve, you know, elements of the human condition. Hmm. Um, but in order to do that, I need to take care of myself. So, it, you know, my taking care of myself is, is not often a primary focus. It's kind of a secondary thing, but it's so that I can, I can be of service in earnest. Right. Whether yeah. that involves being a parent, being a spouse, but extending to the advocacy realm, focusing on initiatives, research, and so forth. If I'm all burnt out and stressed out, first off, I'm just not nice to my family, meaning I just get stressed out and I get snappy and things like that. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not fair to others when I'm not taking care of I'm not fair to others. Do you, do you ever think myself? Do you ever think about who you would be without the esteemable acts, you know, or without a career or without like achievements in that way? Like how you, you know, like how you navigate? That's a really good question. Um, I think for me, I mean, well, you need to break it down in parts. There's without a career, there's without esteemable acts. And then yeah. the third part. I don't know. Those, those, those two are fine. <laughs> sure. Without esteemable acts. Um, it, it, it's hard for me to feel comfortable in my own skin. Like right. I, I, I feel like I need to be, 
doing good um, because it's part of, I don't, it's, I don't know whether you call it my DNA or it's just part of how I'm oriented. Yeah. And when I say doing good, what, what primarily that means is being focused around seeking to create a better world for others, whether it involves improved environments, more access, parity, quality of care, but also I really want to create this better world for my kids. I want to take a moment and share a free resource with y'all to sort out your movement that is starting the first free week of the Align Method online program where you get a thorough movement assessment to establish what is your personal movement baseline. And then on top of that, we share fundamental mobility techniques that will make a massive difference in your own personal practice. If you do any type of stretching or yoga or foam rolling or resistance band training or training in general, you want to get the most out of your body. These are must know mobility techniques. And then it finishes with a sit rise challenge. So you can test yourself and see how effectively you get up and down off of the ground. That is the first week of the Align Method Online program. It's a six week program. You can start the first week at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. And with that, you will also join the free Align community where there's over 3,000 other members in there. So I pop in there each day, totally free. The first week is totally free. And then if you don't love the idea of continuing on with the six-week program, then you can cancel anytime. So check us out over at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. Yeah. So the, so the achievement thing is something that I've, I mean, I think that's like fairly ubiquitous, uh, at this point. And there's probably a healthy side of that and maybe like a less healthy side of that, where if, if you're exclusive, you're the totality of your value as a human being is based off of, um, doing something. I don't know. Do you feel like there could be like a depth in there? of sorts, like there could be even a, a more uh, whole version of one's self that's not based off of off of doing anything at all? Or is it actually just completely healthy to have that doing mentality? Well, it depends. I mean, what what the intentions are, you know, there, there can be activity involving pleasing or codependent behavior, yeah. attachment behavior that very right. much relates to seeking to feel better based upon acting in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's like for a codependence. Me, it's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. People pleasing. I, you know, I'm oriented towards people pleasing just to be perfectly direct around it. So, you know, we talk about esteemable acts and so forth, you know, to please others to feel better needs to be appropriately evaluated because, um, that's not necessarily, you know, doing good or helping <laughs> others. Right. Um, and so, you know, the approach I've ended up taking is a systems based approach. If you look at a given system, whether it's our education system, our mental health care system, you can start piecing or you can start parsing out what's working, what's not working. And if you want to define in terms of what's working, what's not working. Working means, hey, it's improving the quality of life of an individual, of a group, of a community, of a society. It's 
enabling someone to achieve quality care affordably, things like that. And so, you know, really abstracting it out a layer and saying, hey, why are you doing these things? Yeah. Asking myself, hey, what is it that relates to you engaging in activity X, Y, Z? And and for me, I think the important thing is to really understand my intentions mm. because I can be very people pleasing in my orientation. And, and in that sense, it's not dissimilar to what a lot of comedians do, you know, they're, they are ultimate people pleasers. Right. right. And, you know, as an advocate, I, I can definitely become a people pleasing person. So, so, you know, you asked an interesting question, what, what would I be without a seemable acts? And, you know, I think what I would be is very, focus on inward improvement. Um, you know, you can, you can look inward and, and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm oriented and thinking around a certain way. My body functions in another way. My, my inner life, my spiritual life works like this and you, you can improve oneself in pretty miraculous ways if you were to look inward. So, so I guess, you know, my main thing is, is that I, you know, aside from being completely inert, <laughs> not having any sort of inner life or, or focus, I, I would say you remove esteemable acts and then I would just focus inward. Right. And yeah. if you were to move the focusing inward, then I don't know. It's very hard for me to say, cause I'm, I'm so oriented around progress. Yeah. I think a lot of people speaking largely for myself have, fairly hollow internal lives because so much of our bandwidth, just speaking for myself, so much of my bandwidth is exerted outward and it, it can become like, um, a, like quite codependent where your internal landscape or experience or feelings or emotions are almost exclusively contingent on the happenings outside of the self, like outside of like the internal self. And that, that's an, it's an interesting point of if that is pulled away, like I recently did a, uh, a darkness retreat. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that, but you, you sit alone in a dark room for like a week and they like bring you food each day and you just, you have complete, it's a complete sensory deprivation. So you don't, you can't see anything for the entire time. A question for you just, yeah. and then I would love, what is it about pooping? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is, how do you use the bathroom? Is that really what the question was? Yes. I was joking. Um, it's not a big deal. It's not hard. You know, and there was a bath, there was a bathtub as well. So I took like took like a lot of cold plunges and bath ba hot baths each day. So I, I kept my I kept my whistle clean. Um, but it wasn't complicated. You figure it out really quick. And it's literally like a like a, a small studio with a small bathroom. So you sort okay. it out quite quickly. Okay. I, I think I knocked my head like twice. What's that? It's not like a cave. It's like a cave in the sense that it's actually like buried in the ground, but it's a, it's a, like an apartment cave. Essentially. It's a very small apartment cave. It's a place called sky cave retreats in, uh, like a, outside like a, of Ashland, Oregon. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I, I, you know, the adage, try not to shit where you eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, that, yeah I never very hard to do in the darkness. Yeah. No, it's not that bad. Like you think it's going to be more ridiculous than it is. 
but the experience is ridiculous. I mean, the experience, there's, there's a lot of layers to the experience. Um, I, I essentially turned in like turned into a quote unquote crazy person, which we're all crazy in our own right. I always have a lot of compassion walking down the street. If there's a person that's like schizophrenic or a drug addict or something like that, I always, I have a, a sensation of feeling like, Oh, like it's, I'm not that different. You know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm that far away from that. Like what's keeping my tracks or my, my, uh, my train on the tracks. I feel like the, the line between crazy or sane or whatever i think for a lot of people it's a lot um maybe thinner than what we think but during that time in 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 the darkness thing that was something that i experienced was like oh i'm like i'm properly like losing my marbles here and it was supportive it was a good experience were you gonna say something oh no i mean i hear you i am (laughs) so so i didn't mean to (laughs) the conversation Uh, please continue you did a darkness retreat and yeah, no, that was, but, but in, in that, ex, in that experience, that would, would be one actual fairly objective example of, or experience a person could engage with of temporarily cutting the, the ties of the external validation or external kind of relationship to feeling away based off of, off of peripheral stimulus or like, you know, things happening outside of yourself. Cause all you have is yourself for that, that time frame, essentially, you know, and, and what happens with that is just naturally that bandwidth goes internal and you, a person starts to build up their, their, um, you know, their internal fortitude, I guess you could say for lack of better words, sure. but in our, our, our world, like we're in our, we have the option to be in our cell phone, you know, all day if, if, if we choose. And then we have the screens and then we have work and then we have paying rent and then we have found there's a lot of stuff going on the outside. So finding that balance between, um, creating an internal healthy, uh, landscape or developing emotional, uh, hygiene could be examples of that, uh, or, or more words for that. Like how, how does a person begin that process? If that process even, even matters. The pro- can you can you be more specific? The process of going inward, as opposed to as opposed to your um, feelings and emotions being completely contingent on what's the happenings outside. Is there any way that you've discovered to develop some more internal fortitude, for lack of a better word? Sure. Well, I, you know, I think the an important starting point is understanding where we where we seek validation from. Mm-hmm. there's external validators and there's internal validators. Internal mm-hmm. validators are challenging because you kind of need to start building up your own, you know, personal barometer and compass. Mm-hmm. You know, you need, you need to start crafting these instruments. And otherwise what you have is you have basically, you know, for external validators, it's like we have language, right? Which, we have benchmarks around, we have peers or, you know, baselines associated with things like social media or media or so forth. And that's, that's very much how we're viewing, you know, what it means to be externally validated, what we see on TV, what we see on, you know, Facebook, now TikTok and so forth. And, you know, that's often, I'll give you an example of a very clear, specific internal validation likes on Instagram or Facebook. That's, that's a form of validation. The question is, is when you start looking internally, 
it can be challenging because you have to start setting your own benchmarks of achievement and progress. Hmm. And they might have nothing to do with the outside world. They might have to do with your inner life, how, how long you can stay focused through, you know, a, a stream of consciousness through, you know, a, a thought, how long can you maintain what's how long is your streak around maintaining good days, happy days, days where you feel confident, grounded, the thing is, it's also very un unfair for me to say that because, you know, a lot of people experience a lot of dysregulation and so forth. And just it's very hard to have a fully kind of, you know, grounded, happy day because of the nature of what goes on in our lives and so forth. But yeah. what we can start doing is establishing a sense of inner agency and, a, and a, what I like to call a sense of inner authority around how we start improving our sense of self improving sorry that's that's a very vague thing to say improving our sense of self I, improving how we can measure progress for our sense of self whatever that may mean for somebody hmm. because it's it's different for other folks and that's the beauty of internal validation right is that it doesn't have to be relying upon anything else out there mm -hmm. So the question is, how do we establish enough inner authority, inner agency to start saying, hey, this is what progress looks like for me and everything else be damned, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's kind of counterintuitive because we're not, we're not brought up in the Western context, the, the Western pathos to think like this. <laughs> it's very much based upon different levels of achievement, which are very measurable, like financial wealth like you know social following like you know the capability to influence others to exercise power things like that those are very specific and measurable um well maybe not as much influence others and exercise and power but 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 these are external validators yeah right and so I think the important consideration would be how do we develop a sense of grounding and comfort living in this world, in our own skins over a long period of time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have an answer for that. I mainly would say I think we should all really take a look inward and understand what does inner authority look like? How do we develop a sense of self and identity that doesn't need to be validated by folks on the outside? Yeah. Yeah. I think you said a lot. I think that's been, it's, it's as you're, as you're talking, it's like, feels like we're born out, you know, beyond our choosing into the, like a, a game of sorts, you know, it's the economy game and the culture game and, uh, within that, we learn a lot of things that seem like law, um, you know, such as some of the stuff that, that you're that you're mentioning, like just us being advertised at since we're little babies, you know, that you will be loved, you'll be adored, you'll be sexy, you'll be this and that when you when you get this product, you know, or when you look like this, when you look like the, the person that's on the cover of every magazine or person that's on in the movies, saving the girl or, or you know, any of the things. 
And that's all being, um, you know, we're being indoctrinated by that. We're, we're digesting that at a subconscious level and to come to another place of, of just even further agency or sovereignty within ourselves, um, to be in a place of, um, not playing that game, like engaging with the game, acknowledging the game, but also being able to maintain um, a sense of well-being outside of that validation from the external world that I don't need to buy that product to feel like I'm enough, or I don't need to have this many social media followers to feel like I'm enough. I don't need to engage into the economic system to feel like I'm enough, but I get to choose to engage in that system to the, to the degree that I choose. And Wait. I feel well regardless. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about sovereignty, interagency, the, these are, you know, related tangential ways of thinking about things. And I'd say in the case of agency, you should have the opportunity to know when you are playing a specific game. Mm -hmm. Right. And I love games. It's grew up playing them. Um, computer games, video games, board games, chess, you know, um, the thing for me is the self-awareness around when you are engaging in specific game oriented activity. And that, that could be, you know, in part career is an element of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, social engagement is an element of that, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Really what it is, is we're, we're operating within a set of conditions in an environment, right? And without going too over the top philosophically, the question is, is like, how, how can you, providing you understand the rules of the game, how can you, A, acknowledge that you're playing in the game, that there is a set of conditional activity associated with it, meaning like you show up to work nine hours a day, therefore it unlocks a salary right. or a wage, <laughs> right? Um, acknowledging the rules of the game and then understanding, Hey, you know, where, where are the opportunities to have unconditional activity? Right. That's not, you know, that comes from a place of love of, of appreciation that isn't transactional per se, because mm -hmm. games are often very transactional. There's, there's value exchange associated with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and we benefit from value exchange. You know, the, the key thing, though, and this, this extends very much to how I frame my worldview is it's important to understand when relationships or environments are transactional environments, when environments are relational environments, you can often unlock unconditional situations in relational environments and then understand when situations are extractional environments, mm -hmm. you know, in which it's, it's super conditional. And the condition is, Someone takes and someone else gives, mm -hmm. right? And providing we start becoming aware of these situations, we can start understanding, hey, you know, this is transactional. This is relational. This is extractive. This is an environment where I'm solely giving, you know, young children. It's a very extractional relationship by nature. Mm. And you know what? it's totally fine <laughs> for that to be the case. Yeah. Um, you know, 
And we, of course, as parents, as friends and stuff, we derive benefit from that. It's, you can have an extractional environment and it can be okay. The main thing is, though, is that you don't want to engage in, first, unwittingly engage in an extractional environment. Secondly, not understanding when there's a conditional situation versus un- un- unconditional situation and confusing the two. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's okay to have transactional friends. There are value exchanges among certain friends and business relationships and things like that. But if you're relying upon, if you have the expectation of it being a relational rapport, a relational interaction, a relational exchange, and it's a transactional exchange, meaning that someone is deriving value from being around you, from doing something with you, then, you know, there's a misaligned set of priorities. Yeah. What do you think the the state, I don't know how I'm going to formulate this question exactly, but like the emotional set point or the state set point or the feeling set point of a person that is um, truly in a state of presence, or you could maybe say like flow state, but a mind that's undistracted or unbound by all of these kind of happenings that were that you're that you're um kind of sharing you know and 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 perhaps uh you know this the stress of of these relationships or the stress of work or this or, or the stress of stories that we might have i wonder do you feel like you have any sense of of like the the baseline state of the human in when when they're in a state of presence or does that sound like too metaphysical of a question no it's not metaf- no it's a it's a it's a it is, it depends on, depends on how you look at what a state of flow is, right? It, it could be yeah. from, a, from a biomarker standpoint, it could very much relate to having elements of the brain activated where you're focused and engaged and you're not ruminating and you're not experiencing, you know, a level of anxiety or stress where it's distracting, right? From a, yeah. from a interaction model standpoint, um, which is not like, that's not a medical term from an interaction model standpoint. I'm, I'm just talking about the you know, background in tech. I'm just thinking very much yeah. around kind of how, how we can look at us speaking one another without other inputs that are crowding our perspective, the quality of our discourse or dialogue, the signal that we're getting from one another. Yeah. And um, I think when it comes to something like flow, it can be, I think it's becoming increasingly more difficult to experience that for a number of different reasons. Um, I think the level, uh, and the term I'll use is just digital overcrowding mm-hmm. that we're experiencing now has completely reconfigured and I'm speaking in aggregate, I'm not speaking, you know, individuals function very differently. Some have been very yeah. good at cutting off from technology and so forth. But I think the way in which we use technology, specifically things like mobile phones, computers, and so forth, have created an interaction model that is not conducive to flow. Therefore, when we shift to one-on-one engagement, whether it's over, you know, audio or video or in person, I think 
we are have become very acclimated and established coping mechanisms associated with digital overcrowding. And so it can feel a little bit cognitively dissonant to be in a flow state because it can I think it's becoming more and more unusual for people mm -hmm. to be interacting with one another in flow or for us to be functioning in flow. So I think it can actually be unsettling for folks now. That said, I think there's a process of discovery associated with finding flow and engaging uh, in processes that help kind of declutter that reduce digital overcrowding and so forth that enable us to get more into a flow state. But if we're talking, if we're hearkening back to, you know, like the strictly biological level, you know, I think we can do more to really th think about or to work through what do we need biologically to give us a better chance of entering a flow state? Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems like, 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 uh, would you differentiate a lot of the semantics, but presence, a person that is present with a person that is in flow, would there no. be two different states for you? Okay. So presence yeah, flow. I would, I would 100% differentiate it. Okay. So what would, how would the differentiation be? Cause I, I, I think my, my question is more a person that's actually able to be in authentic presence with themselves and their experience and not bound up. I, I think this would be hard, almost maybe quite challenging to, to measure but wrapped up in different stories that may induce different levels of anxiety or fear or resistance or this and that. Is there some like deep yogi level presence that allows a person to, to navigate the world in a deeply connected yet, yet non-attached way where they're able to process emotion and experience, but not be completely overwhelmed and like destroyed by it yeah, because well, they're attached. Yeah. Well, well for, I mean, Attachment's a whole different, I mean, we could talk entire about, like, that's a whole another session. About I think this is mental health, man. <laughs> I think this is like the root of mental yeah, health. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to it. In part, in part. Um, yeah. So it's important we differentiate, it's important we differentiate presence and flow. Mm. Okay. Um, presence is a state right? You can, you can activate presence, right? Flow is a state that you can achieve, but, but it generally requires a ramping up in which, you know, it, it, it's very hard to just go from zero to one, like just to activate flow on a dime is, is something that I think, you know, I've witnessed and some people, athletes, for example, sure. are very, are, can, can, can do that. But generally I would say it's a lot harder in terms of presence, you know, I think a large part of it has to do with active listening yeah, and, and establishing a way of applying attention where you, you can connect with someone in, a, in an immediate or near immediate um, time frame. So, so you know, I, I, I would hope more people can get in the flow. For me, it, it's it's challenging because I context switch all the time. So I have to, you know, the, the analog that I apply in a lot of circumstances is just reducing the penalty associated with switching tasks hmm. versus long, deep, long-term deep flow. That's hard for me to achieve because of the level in which I'm context switching a lot. Hmm. We've become 
I'd say, you know, given the digital overcrowding and the like, we're able to context switch a lot, but it, but it, I think it's deeply interfered with our ability to do what, whatever you want to call it, deep work, establish or apply deep focus, things that are essential when it comes to creativity, writing, making music, um, you know, crafting, creating things, sculpting could be in a situation where you're writing code or like, I think, you know, we're, we're getting more and more challenged to, to really apply deep work and, and, and often that deep work is required to establish, you know, profundity breakthrough yeah. and different things. If you only had like an elevator pitch or a few words of describing what's at the root of the mental health epidemic, if that's appropriate language that, that modern culture seems to be experiencing, what would you, what would you suggest is at the root of the mental health epidemic? Um, I mean, there's a few things that are at the root. One is, yeah. one is the, the systemic issue. It's not just the level of care that's needed to support people along the spectrum. It's generally, allocated to, and from a resourcing perspective, allocated to crisis, mm -hmm. um, which is very expensive, very time consuming and, and requires a lot of, a lot of resourcing to, to do reasonably. Okay. No, I didn't say, well, um, yeah. I think that's a component of it. I'd say there's an underlying issue relating to our collective metabolic health. Mm -hmm. You know, when 60% of Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic, American adults are pre-diabetic or diabetic. And if your metabolism is dysregulated, there's all sorts of comorb comorbidities relating to mental health. I think that's another consideration that we certainly don't talk about enough. I think our relationship with technology, the digital overcrowding I was saying is, is further contributing to stressors, things like overwhelming our allostatic system in the body um, just leading us to feel disconnected, distracted, stressed, overwhelmed, and so forth is another contributor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when it comes to us thinking about things like prevention, we don't prioritize lifestyle interventions, prevention-oriented activity enough. That's in part why I started my company. Yeah. Yeah. So the PIM, PYM, focuses predominantly on the metabolic aspect of... of um, the nutritional aspect. So, so I created the company because I needed to find solutions when I was experiencing anxiety and depression and was diagnosed with complex PTSD after my father died by suicide. And mm. I found healing for the PTSD through service, but with the anxiety and depression, when I stopped self-medicating using things like alcohol, um, it was getting progressively worse. And I realized I wasn't eating very well. My now wife introduced me to nutritional formulations that ultimately was able to manage my anxiety or support my anxiety uh, through a period of two days and my depression through a period of two weeks. And I was so impressed with the outcome that I was like, why didn't I know more about this? And it turns out, you know, I had inherent bias around things like nutrition. I was very skeptical. And in discovering these solutions, I was like, why don't more people know about this? And 
we ultimately created a company, my wife and I, around um, around a brand that we would hope could stand for mental health adv- advocacy, like you know, Starbucks stands for coffee, or Patagonia stands for sustainability. And as part of that, we wanted to create nutritional formulations that we could educate people around, so that they would have solutions that could help in part manage the deficiencies, but also support them through times of need. And and the other thing that we establish in conjunction with that is education going beyond the nutrition, because in my mind, nutrition is a part of it, but you also need to look at fitness, mindfulness, meditation, potentially therapy, community support, and so forth. And so we really need to look at the holistic systems-based perspective when it comes to these things. And so- Yeah, of course. Yeah, we, we created this company, PYM, PIM, because um, we needed to establish prevention as a priority for people when it came to their mental well-being. I want to take a moment and share something that I think is a really clever way to integrate the benefits of a sauna practice into the comfort of your home in the form of a blanket, something that is very affordable and something that is very convenient and adaptable. You can put it anywhere. You can travel with it. It is the sauna blanket from Bond Charge. It is infused with near and far infrared light. So you're getting the benefits that you would get from sitting in a $5,000 infrared sauna in the accessibility of a blanket that you just store at your home. So this is great for burning calories. It's great for cardiovascular function. It's great for mitochondrial health and overall um, tissue regeneration. Uh, the sauna blanket is something that I think it's a no-brainer if you're a person that wants to integrate a sauna practice into your life but you don't have the space or perhaps the finances to incorporate a full-blown sauna at your home or your apartment so if you are interested in trying this thing out they have a 30-day money-back guarantee so if you don't love it you'll get your money back Uh, it ships worldwide in pretty rapid time which is really cool and you guys get yourself a 50 discount by going to bonchargecom slash align. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com slash align. And then use align15 promo code checkout for 15% off. This thing is sexy. It's really fun to use and uh, you can store it anywhere in your home. And I think you guys are going to really dig it. So go to bonchargecom slash align. Use promo code align15 for 15% off. If you don't have the raw materials to, you know, whatever, be metabolically homeostatic or like decent, uh, it would be really tough to have whatever intentions you'd have or gratitude practice or whatever you're doing to be able to actually stick. Like like it's, it's a, it's a dual street, you know, like the, 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 the thoughts that you think and the, the relationships that you have influence the motivation to want to make better nutritional choices and the nutritional choices that you make influences the way that you show up as a human being and the way that your your mind manifests itself and the way that you communicate so it's cool to be able to create something concise like that is there is is there what are some of the the um primary ingredients in there could a person like what what, i I think gaba is is one of them um a lot of endogenous compounds so things like we're launching a product for attention um 
to support things like procrastination and distraction and so forth. And that product has tyrosine, um, carnitine, taurine, a bunch of other cofactors associated with providing attention support. Hmm. Um, but, you know, we generally focus on endogenous compounds, meaning those compounds that your body knows what to do with pretty handily, any given body. Yeah. Uh, there are exceptions. Sometimes we have issues metabolizing things like B vitamins from individual into, to individual, because some of us have about 40% of Americans have an MTHFR allele, things like that, that are, you know, differentiated between us. But um, we focus on endogenous compounds because they can be readily metabolized by the body and ultimately are contributing towards this healing paradigm if you're focused on things like nutrition and supporting um, your neurotransmitter health, which is a large part of what we're doing, and also looking at um, how the deficiencies in our diet are further contributing to mental dysregulation. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, do you feel like there's anything that Western culture could do, could do to improve it's slash our relationship with death and transitioning, whatever you want to call it, the transitioning out of this body, death, passing over, passing on. It's, 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 I think it's a, in my experience, it's an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, it can feel rude to talk about. Uh, it can feel disrespectful to talk about. It can, feel, it can feel, or, or it could be welcomed. It could be a lot of things, but I think it's like a little, like sphincters tighten up a little bit generally around this really like brilliantly natural, elegant aspect of life. Um, what do you think about that? Or do you think that that's, I'm noticing something that doesn't exist? No, I mean, I, I, I think the modern the contemporary media environment and so forth inundates us with bad news and things like death and the like. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's sort of a collective trauma that we've experienced over the past several years, or you could even say decades around how we're viewing, you know, the topic and how we experience things like grief. It's a very, very challenging subject to address and, such a short amount of time, but yeah. yeah, I think that our relationship, you know, there's, there's a death component, but also there's the violence component and so forth. I, I think that, you know, we can, we can often dehumanize a lot of what's going on because mm -hmm. we're so subject to it in the media and, and, um, and so forth. And so I, it's a challenging thing for me to have a specific um, answer or solution around. I think the main thing is, is that I think we need to be mindful about our personal relationships with death and mortality. Hmm. Yeah. How has your, how has your relationship with it evolved over the years? Do you, do you have any, any feeling of like afterlife or things of, of that sort? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have a spiritual life. I'm, I'm, very comfortable with it. And, uh, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm hoping to establish, you know, foundation for my kids and future generations around that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit complicated cause I came from several different 
religious foundations. And so mm-hmm. it, it was a multi-year journey for me, but I finally have found, um, you know, a grounding that I'm comfortable moving forward with. Yeah. Um, it seems like you got to, you got to run pretty soon, right? Uh, yeah, I got a few minutes. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I appreciate you making, uh, efforts to share, um, around mental well-being, mental, mental health. It's such an important conversation. Um, is there anything else to share in this, in this conversation? Anything you feel compelled to share? Um, well, no, I mean, I love going into things in further depth. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, the level of discourse here, it, it, I think it's conducive towards going deeper and wider. And, you know, I think we need to be having these conversations more. Um, the main thing from, from my perspective and lens is, uh, you know, we need, we need to develop a, a deeper inner life, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, but one with inner agency and inner authority, one in which we can start really not requiring external validations and how we, how we grow and mature as folks. And, um, you know, the things I'm really looking forward to are, you know, the breaking down of stigma will contribute to kids being, being more aware and, and more grounded in what they need to take care of themselves and can ultimately become, you know, the, the versions of themselves that they want to be undistracted and, in more of a flow state. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, do you think there's anything that, that would be supportive to your, um, you know, whatever three or five or eight or whatever, like your young version of yourself though would have been supportive to have received or experienced to facilitate more fluidity in the mind and your heart and relationships, et cetera, et cetera, in your adult life. Yeah, it's a good question. So for me, the main thing was, uh, you know, I thought, things like therapy were checking a box and I didn't really tie it to the greater picture. Um, you know, I feel like I come from a position of privilege around having had the opportunity to do therapy over a period of time. And I didn't establish weight or gravity towards the privilege of having things like therapy. And so I wasn't attuned to anything relating to lifestyle or meant, you know, mental hygiene until far later in life until only recently. And so I would have hoped I would have discovered, I would have hoped I discovered those things earlier on in hindsight. I, I would have loved to um, have found things that would best suit me and support me. Hmm. Cool. Uh, last question. Is there like, what's the the greatest lesson that you feel like you, you garnered from your, your father in your life? Um, find ways to be kind to yourself Mm -hmm. because everything good in the world comes from starting with being nice and kind to yourself. Do you, do you feel like you still have a relationship with him? Sometimes people, after someone passes, I feel like they have an, an even deeper relationship with a person in their lives or it changes. Do you feel like there's still a relationship between you two? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I do very much so. 
Cool. Um, it, would it be okay to ask what that relationship is like, or am, am I going too far at this point? And you got to run. I'm, yeah, it's it's at, you know at this point it's um, I'm, I, I, I have a I have a relationship with him that I have as you know like a private thing and just as other people do with him and for me the important thing is that i think we all need to celebrate our loved ones in ways in which we can feel comfortable communicating with them and and experiencing them as we see fit yeah cool man well thanks so much for uh sharing your life and uh sharing the time here today um, the company is called PIM. The website's pym.com. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So people want to get involved in that. Um, and it's the supplements are for what are the, what's do you have two primary ones? Or what's what are the, the main ones? Uh, we have six and we're launching three more. They're, they're for neurotransmitter health and for mental well being because, cool. yeah, the majority of American adults have deficiencies relating to things they need to be taking nutrition they need to be um ingesting to support their mental well-being we have yeah. neurotransmitter deficiencies as uh as an issue in the western diet and so there's more we need to be doing cool man well thank you so much thank you for your time i appreciate you and uh, appreciate we're doing the world and hopefully we can do this again you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as i did please remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get each week's episodes as well check out the align podcast youtube channel to receive free instructional content on how to move and feel better each week as well as the videos from this podcast uh, thanks for leaving comments thanks for leaving us reviews thanks for doing you and uh, we'll see you guys next week